You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of a lifetime. When you can understand you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. Hello and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership And so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Anson Dorrance. Anson is an American soccer coach. In the USA, it is referred to as soccer and not football, who is currently the head coach of the women's team at the University of North Carolina. Under his leadership, the team has won 21 of the last 31 NCAA championships. His teams have a winning record of 91% and he has been named the NCAA Coach of the Year on eight occasions. In 1991, he also led the USA team to the first Women's World Cup. The USA have gone on to win the World Cup on four occasions and one-third of the players in those teams have come through Anson's team at North Carolina. Another notable alumna of his team is Serena Wegman, who led the UK team to the Women's Euro Cup in 2022. Anson has firm and challenging philosophies that he has honed over many, many years, and listening to him made me reflect on the way I parent and lead. In this fantastic interview, some of the highlights for me were how coaching men and women the same is a mistake. It is associated learning that women are better at making moral judgments based on how people are affected, and he personally would prefer to be led by someone like that. The concept of the competitive cauldron, which shapes the culture in his team and is based on rankings for performance on a multitude of areas at training and in games. And his fantastic idea that, quote, if you're a female and you're competitive, you are excoriated by your own culture. Like there's something wrong with you. No, there's nothing wrong with you. End quote. This was a deep conversation with a coach who has experienced prolonged and sustained success. And just before we go to the interview, today's podcast is brought to you by the Macquarie University Business School's MBA program. Designed to empower, challenge and transform, the Macquarie MBA gives you the business skills and knowledge you need to succeed in an evolving global economy. The program bridges the gap between theory and real-world application, bringing together world-leading professors, executives, and industry partners to teach you how business can be used for good. I have just started working with the team at Macquarie on some projects and can attest to the quality of the people and material. 
To find out more, search for Macquarie University Business Schools MBA. And now, please enjoy our interview with Anson Dorrance. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Anson Dorrance, good morning, my time, good afternoon, your time, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. My pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Well, could we start with something really simple? Could you tell us where you are in the world and what you've been up to so far today? Right now, I am sitting in the middle of my dining room uh, during a spring break in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And the break is um, I coach at a university level, so my all my players right now are actually scattered to the winds. Um, so uh, I don't have a training session this afternoon. I am a, I'm an absolute free man because if I did have a training session this afternoon, I would not be on this podcast. Well, thank you very much for carving out a little bit of time to chat with us. I've been, uh, as I said off air, I've been chasing uh, Corey, your assistant, for at least six months to get this interview. So I'm very excited to chat with you today. Well, so am I. Uh, so uh, I appreciate this. And by the way, I, I enjoy all these conversations. So please don't think that uh, uh, this is any sort of labor for me. It's not. In fact, uh, uh, I have rarely turned down a, a podcast opportunity because honestly, the conversations with different people are fascinating for me and and I thoroughly enjoy them. So uh, I like this new medium. Well, I'll be waiting for the feedback at the end of the interview then to see how I went relative to all the others that you've done. Anson, I would like to just ask you about something I read about you in preparing for today. And it, you said that early in your career, you identified five great coaches and selected the five most prominent qualities of each of them to form your own philosophy. Could you tell us who those people were and what eventuated from that exercise? Yeah, so what what I did, I think this is in the intro to uh, training soccer champions. Um, I had all these different mentors, and uh, there was a quality in each mentor that I tried to adopt myself. Uh, so uh, uh, there was a, a guy that was coaching at Lynchburg, uh, uh, college uh, by the name of uh, Schellenberger. And he just seemed to exude class. And so I wanted to sort of be able to exude his class. So I adopted his sort of persona in that one area of, uh, I guess, uh, I guess checking boxes. And so I wanted to have the class of Schellenberger. I wanted to have the presence <clears throat> of Bobby Gansler. Gansler was one of these wonderful uh, uh, coaches that, uh, came through uh, uh, Europe. I think he was uh, uh, part German, maybe part Austrian. And he was a coaching instructor for me when I was a young coach. Uh, and uh, I really loved when he would stand in front of a group and he had this ability to stand there and just project uh, confidence. Uh, and he had a wonderful manner. <clears throat> he was very formal in a very good sort of Germanic way. And I really respected him. And he taught me a lot about the game in these coaching schools that I attended with him. And so that was, that was a part of it for me. Um, I wanted to have the uh, humility of, uh, of a Dean Smith. I mean, this is the collegiate coach of, you know, Michael Jordan. And so, you know, watching uh, Dean Smith work uh, just was extraordinary because the way he treated uh, the lowliest manager on his roster would be treated with the same amount of deference and respect that he would treat Michael Jordan with. And I just, Really, really appreciated all these different qualities uh, that uh, he exuded as just a remarkable leader of of of, of people. Uh, and then uh, one of my mentors is a wonderful gentleman by the name of Cliff McCrath. And when I was a young coach, I would go to these coaching conventions, and invariably he was one of the keynote speakers, or at least the master of of ceremonies. And he had this capacity with his storytelling and his charisma to just own the room. So I wanted to be able to speak like Cliff McCrath. And so basically I took a, a piece out of all these different uh, coaches and I tried to assemble <clears throat> in what my mind was going to be, you know, the super coach that could sort of do everything, you know, speak, you know, charismatically lead, you know, with this wonderful sort of Germanic frame jutting out, you know, commanding the, the training session. And so I just uh, found these great qualities and all these people I, I admired and sort of assembled them all uh, together 
in the intro to the book. And honestly, it was so long since I've written that book. I may have skipped a coach or two or substituted someone in for someone else. Uh, but honestly, uh, that was my ambition. I wanted, <clears throat> I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to really be uh, as good as I could be and not in any one area. I wanted to be very good at everything. And so uh, talk about ambition. I did not lack for ambition uh, as a young man. Um, and uh, now that I'm a, an older man, I'm, I'm wondering where all this came from. I think it came from uh, the love of my mother. She absolutely loved me. She gave me this extraordinary confidence uh, because I run into most people. They don't have this this extraordinary confidence that I have. And I know that um, I benefited from a mother ju that just, you know, thought I was just a great little kid. Um, and I'm absolutely convinced that she made all the difference in the world for me because my ambition was absolutely over the moon. Well, you also attribute your love of soccer to the time you spent living in Kenya. And I'm wondering, what do you remember seeing in Kenya that ignited your affection for soccer? Actually, it wasn't uh, Kenya. <clears throat> uh, my first soccer experience was actually in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. In Kenya, I was the classic, you know, son of an aristocratic uh, family. And I played sports like rugby and cricket. And I boxed because that's what aristocrats did. I played some field hockey as well. We aristocrats would never, you know, descend into the abyss of the lower classes and play a game like soccer, God forbid. So, no, in Kenya, I went to this uh, English school and <clears throat> I represented my color which was mead. It was yellow. And we competed against three other colors and all these different events. And uh, soccer was not one of the events. I mean, we ha even had this event uh, that uh, was called British Bulldogs, where you had to sprint across an open field, not get caught. And if you were caught, the challenge of the person that caught you was to lift you up in the air and scream British Bulldogs and then throw you to the earth, you know. Uh, so we even had ridiculous games like that as the the Mead army would try to cross through, you know, the Red Sea or whatever, you know, however that red team named themselves. Uh, so I, I was wonderfully uh, uh, a British aristocrat in those days. And if, I was not a soccer player back then because that wasn't for me. Uh, that was, you know, that was for that was for the lower classes. And so uh, <laughs> I didn't actually pick up soccer until I went to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And boy, did I have a baptism of fire uh, with soccer in that environment, because I was clearly the absolute worst player on the field in every game I played in. As these extraordinary African boys would uh, dance around me, over me, through me, you know, like it was just I was, you know, a traffic cone. So that was my exposure to the game. And honestly, I did not fall in love with it then. I'm not one of these people that, you know, graciously uh, enjoyed being thumped to death uh, in a sport that I had no mastery of. Uh, back in those days, I was an expert at shooting marbles <clears throat> and throwing rocks. Uh, my arm is a gun. And uh, all of us back in the uh, St. Joseph's days in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, all had a rock in our back pocket that we used to throw it basically these cigarette uh, cards that we cut out that at a relatively long distance had to hit with this rock. And as a result, uh, my, my throwing arm developed uh, wonderfully during these days. And of course, everyone wanted to beat the uh, white kid with the brand new marbles because all of their marbles were, you know, destroyed from overuse. And mine, of course, were brand new. Why? Because, I was uh, the only white kid in the entire school. In fact, <clears throat> one of my father's favorite jokes about me when I went to this African school was that um, it's one of the few academic awards I've ever won, actually, in my life. I've only won two academic awards in my life. I'm talking about from elementary school right through the end of when I dropped out of law school. And one of them was I won the English award at St. Joseph's School in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Why? Because I was the only kid in school that spoke English at home. So, And the guy that gave me the award, by the way, was Emperor Haile Selassie, which is wonderfully extraordinary, especially when uh, uh, you look at his status in the world as uh, basically ruling the country 
that was the only non-colonized African country. And as a result, he's revered uh, all over the world as this great uh, African leader because Ethiopia was never colonized. But uh, yeah, so I was introduced to soccer there, but honestly, I was miserable. Um, I did not develop great affection for it as people went through me like I was dead. Um, my, uh, my games back then were marbles and throwing rocks. Well, from that humble beginning, a big career grows. But I want to go on a bit of a journey before we get there, because I've got an interesting quote from you, Anson, actually. You say, your margin of success is based on your inner drive. Now, I'm curious to ask you, what did the best team environments do to allow this inner drive to express itself? <clears throat> I guess the... the um... What's really interesting, the older I get and, and the more podcasts I join, uh, the more I have a better understanding, actually, of who I am. Um, <clears throat> and I'm one of these guys that loves listening to political shows, especially now that, you know, the United States is lurching towards authoritarianism. So I watch all these liberal political shows on American television. And I also watch uh, the conservative shows because I certainly want to know what everyone's thinking and what they're saying. And there's a wonderful American uh, liberal commentator, uh, political commentator by the name of Rachel Maddow. And I love listening to her show. Uh, and the reason I do is she's exceptionally bright. Um, and uh, she brings on interesting people to sort of explain the world to me, or at least American politics to me. Now, this particular day, she brought on a, uh, a wonderful expert. <clears throat> and uh, he, she was about to introduce this these series of questions that this expert was going to address. And then the expert turned it around on her and said, well, like, you know, Rachel, uh, what are you an expert in? And I saw her literally stopping to think because she had never been confronted with this kind of question. And this is an extraordinarily uh, articulate and eloquent, uh, you know, loquacious speaker. So it wasn't like she ever had to hesitate before someone asked her a question and yet when this person asked her, well, you know, you know, Rachel, what are you an expert in? She actually hesitated. And I was saying, this is extraordinary. So that means she's actually thinking about what to say. And then her answer, I thought, was absolutely wonderful because of what it forced me to do. And she said, uh, I am an expert in reading comprehension. And I was thinking to myself, that is a really interesting answer. And then I started to think about that answer. And that was a perfect answer for her to give, because when I listened to her on her political show, she is extraordinary explaining at explaining the world to me and the politics in the world and the different opinions of the politics in this world uh, and the different issues that I guess all of us have to address if we are interested in the, you know, <laughs> the future of, you know, this planet we live on and the people that are in it. And it forced me to think, well, you know, Answer, what are you an expert on? And the last thing that came to mind to me was football, soccer. I, I That didn't occur to me. And then I thought about it, and I came to the conclusion, I'm an expert in competition. And the question you asked me is a really good one, because I think what sets the environments apart that I coach in is I can construct an environment <clears throat> where my athletes are hanging on with the edge of their fingernails because of how competitive I have roped it up to be. And as a result, my athletes develop what I call the gift of fury, which is the capacity to compete like no one else. And we have had some very ordinary teams that have done nothing but uh, won games, not because they were the superior soccer players, or the better tacticians or more gifted, you know, technically or, or athletically, but the quality that these great teams that won possessed was the capacity to win. So that's my expertise. I am an expert on competition. And um, 
I'm not one of these people that genuinely thinks you can actually teach leadership. In fact, uh, uh, even though I do a lot of leadership speaking, <clears throat> I always let the people know that have hired me to speak in some leadership conference that, you know what, uh, please know if someone in the crowd asks me, well, Anson, do you think you can teach leadership? I'm going to still cash your check, but I'm going to say no. Um, because I've been trying to teach leadership for, you know, every year I've been coaching and I don't think I've succeeded. I think what I've discovered is, you know, well, this person can lead and this guy, this person can't. And, and I've put all these people in different positions to see if they could lead. And even though I've been desperate to try to teach something about leadership, I think all that I've really done is I've put them in these positions and they've succeeded. And I've said, good, you know, okay, well done. Um, and, uh, I don't think I, uh, I can teach leadership. Um, and I question whether anyone actually can. But the teams that I've had that have been incredibly successful have been incredibly well-led. And I think it's because of these extraordinary people that I've, I've recruited or selected to lead the teams. And then I've, I've watched them do it. And trust me, I, have, I work myself to death to teach leadership. But – and here's the way I guess – I would convince myself that I can teach leadership. If everyone I teach or the majority of them becomes a good leader, but I can't testify to that. I can't testify to you right now that the majority of the people that I've tried to help become good leaders have become good leaders. And I'm even trying something new this year. And I'm always willing to share my latest effort to try to teach leadership <clears throat> So uh, if you want me to dig into that, I could drill into this new idea I have. and um, Please, well, share, it, share it with us. But I do want to come back and ask you about competitiveness, but I'm very happy to hear about your new leadership idea. Sure, sure, sure. Right, so here we go. Um, obviously, the first uh, leadership challenge that all of us have is to lead yourself. And what I'm going to share isn't particularly deep, but it's where we all have to begin because you can't lead anyone else unless you've succeeded in leading yourself because in order to lead anyone – you have to have at least some modicum of credibility. So the analogy I use with the young leaders is, you know, uh, there's no hope for you to lead us in fitness if you're unfit. So based on what, you know, part of our culture you want to try to lead, you have to have credibility in that area to lead it effectively. <clears throat> so the first thing you have to start with in any sort of leadership quest is to lead yourself. And this is where so many of us fail, actually. Uh, many of us fail because we just don't have the capacity to lead ourselves uh, because leading yourself requires all sorts of things that scare all of us to death, <clears throat> like uh, commitment, work ethic, you know, discipline, keeping our promises. I mean, all these things that are just an incredible series of demands, which is why most of us would rather not lead ourselves. We'd rather, you know, drift with the wind and, you know, do what's ever comfortable and, you know, pursue, you know, whatever, you know, lights are fire and uh and obviously uh, those people uh rarely end up leaders because they're so undisciplined and they don't understand uh the incredible challenge that uh all of us have that do lead where the first step is to effectively lead yourself <clears throat> so here's where i am now um when i was uh, a young coach uh the uh, american state department had the audacity to send me down to Argentina uh, on a State Department mission to teach the Argentinians how to play football. Isn't that extraordinary? So I was thinking to myself, gosh, the arrogance of the American State Department to send me down to Argentina, especially now, especially now, me sharing this story with you is wonderful because, of course, they're reigning world champions uh, on the men's side. So <clears throat> anyway, this story is wonderfully appropriate for the current conditions. So anyway, I'm sent down there. No, obviously I'm not sent down there to, you know, coach men. I'm down there to coach women's coaches and women. So I, I don't want to pretend that I was sent down there to, you know, reconstruct, uh, you know, the Argentinian men's side. And that's why they've won the world championship. God forbid. So anyway, I'm down there <clears throat> and the training center back when I was sent to uh, Argentina was right next to the Buenos Aires airport. So, of course, since I'm down there to teach them how to play football, I'm taken into this wonderful training center. I walk in, and what do I see immediately on the walls are pictures of Minotti, the great Argentinian coach that won their world championship back in the day. 
And they had all these sayings on the walls, and I love sayings. Uh, I'm a closet intellectual, so I'm reading one quote after another. And my favorite quote on the wall, and I might not get this exactly right, so God forbid if you're listening to this podcast in the middle of the uh, Buenos Aires you know, National Training Center, um, I might not get this exactly right, but I know I'm going to get the theme right. He says something to the effect of, uh, soccer is a collection of small societies. And I was thinking to myself, that is a wonderful description of tactical alliances that occur all over the field. If you're going to have to, if you're going to, if you desire to have an effective team, and obviously part of it are attacking relationships. If you're playing a one, three, five, two with your two nines, it's your defensive relationships you know, between your left midfielder in the five and your left back in the three. It's how close your six plays on top of the three. And so it's, yeah, uh, it was a wonderful statement. All of a sudden, when I'm reading this in the walls of, you know, uh, this National Training Center in Buenos Aires, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this guy has something. So uh, one of my many leadership jaunts was, you know, the last couple of years, I've been talking about small societies more and more and, I even have my teams as they walk out in the field. Uh, uh, if we're playing, uh, uh, let's say, a, a 4 3 3, uh, basically my left center back, my left back, and my left wing all walk out into the middle of the field, arms around each other in a line uh, with the tallest player in the middle and the two shorter ones on either arm, and they're walking out. And you're seeing the heads move back and forth as, as they're chatting. Um, you know, my right center back, my right back and my right wing are also walking out in a small society. Uh, the center of my field is another small society. So basically, uh, you know, my six and my tens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and my nine or something. So anyway, I've got all these small societies and they're connecting with each other because they need relationships offensively, but they also need defensively. And so I'm thinking this is just a, a great move forward. Well, <clears throat> obviously we've, we've added all these different things. And by the way, I have a hundred other things i've done but now the latest thing i'm on <clears throat> is i'm taking our core values and i'm taking my top six finishers in my core values and these are all done with uh, a peer evaluation to sort out who lives my culture and i'm picking my bottom six uh athletes in my core values and i'm matching up my best uh, liver of my culture with my worst I'm giving them sections of a book written by Christine Porath to read about basically <clears throat> uh, what I'm going to call uh, your personal narrative, basically your self-awareness. And I'm also giving the leaders, the mentors, a book about uh, uh, radical candor to read so they can develop this leadership quality to try to inspire uh, the ones that are not living the culture. And so now I'm matching my my core value sort of winners uh, against the ones that haven't lived it yet. And so this is my latest uh, leadership adventure. If you call me in a year, I will let you know if I absolutely fell on my face again for the 400th time or whether there was some progress. And by the way, if there is progress, it's going to appear in a book that Christine Porath and I are going to write together on uh, culture. So that's my latest shot at, you know, trying to develop leadership. Oh, thank you for sharing it. I'll definitely check out the book and I will come back in a year and see how you went. But Hanson, I would like to go back to competitiveness that you claimed sure. to be an expert in because I, in preparing for today, I didn't know a lot about Dean Smith growing up in Australia. It just wasn't on the radar as much, but I understand the influence that he had on you as a coach and the idea of, if I'm getting this right, the idea of measuring performance at training as a way of improving the individual was something that you took from him. And you have this criteria that can go all the way up to 20, which uh, which ranks each individual on through a training session, which is actually fantastic. So, but, but what actually I wanted to ask you about is how do new people that join your team, players, staff, anybody, how do they adjust to this heightened, heightened level of competitiveness? How do you help them through that process? Well, first of all, <clears throat> anyone that joins us knows about uh, the competitive cauldron. 
they've either read about it in my books or um, they've been warned against it uh, by all my competitors that basically share with them. The last place you want to go is to the University of North Carolina because everything you do in practice uh, is going to be recorded and it's basically oppressive uh, and it's just uh, uh, it's just no fun. Uh, so every player coming in knows about the cauldron. <clears throat> and so uh, it's not like they're shocked uh, when they experience it for the first time. They know this is coming. But what's coming, I think, is more benign than they're led to believe, uh, certainly by the competitors that are trying to convince them not to come. Because all we're doing, really, is we're giving them extraordinary feedback after every single session. And then they have to decide on what they're going to do with this feedback. And uh, <clears throat> I wanted to design a program that I would like to play in. So I hate rules. We don't have any rules. Um, but I also want to know at the end of every single training session, I was the best one on the field. And so uh, I'm an alpha. Uh, and I want to declare that the people I recruit are also alphas that just are dying to express themselves. Uh, one of my favorite lines in Mia Hamm's book, uh, Go for Goal, was when she said, when I got to North Carolina, I could finally be the athlete I was. And what sort of athlete was she? She was a shark with blood in the water. And in almost every other culture she had been in, she was excoriated for being herself. And when she got to North Carolina, it was like, oh, my gosh, I am home. So what we try to tell all these alpha females out there that have been ostracized and sort of shunned and, you know, sort of disgraced in every team they've ever played on because they tried hard and tried to win. Your home is waiting for you at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill because we love those kinds of athletes. We will wrap our arms around you and protect you from the chaos of the universe we will protect you from a culture that has told you there's something wrong with you because you're competitive. And what's wrong with this picture? If you're a male and you're competitive, you're put on a pedestal. And if you're a female and you're competitive, you are excoriated by your own culture like there's something wrong with you. No, there's nothing wrong with you. And so these sort of athletes can come in here that have that sort of disposition. They finally realize they are home. So uh, trust me, the kids coming in, um, most of them have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen. But I think the positive side of all this is I've had the incredible privilege this semester of being asked to co-teach uh, in a course titled The Art and Science of Expertise. And we have two absolutely brilliant UNC professors that I've joined uh, that are teaching this course. And one of the wonderful things we're teaching, actually, is deliberate practice. The Anders Ericsson idea of how you can become extraordinary by practicing the right way. And there's sort of a formula to it. You know, you set a goal uh, and then you sort of get after it. And then with maximum repetition. But another piece in there that most people don't appreciate is the feedback. Uh, the feedback is also critical for uh, successful deliberate practice. And the feedback we give our kids is extraordinary. And this is one of the things I stole from Dean Smith. When I was a young coach, uh, he was just such a wonderful man. And I didn't know anything about anything. And all of a sudden, this coach of Michael Jordan comes up to me and says, you know, Anson, uh, uh, if you like, uh, I'd certainly love it if you and your staff came in. And if you want to watch some practice, we'll set it up for you and I'm thinking, are you kidding me? So, of course, I jumped on his offer, um, and I went to one of his practices. And first of all, right out of the bat, I was completely stunned. Uh, back in those days when Dean Smith invited me in to watch him uh, uh, train his basketball team, I was coaching two teams. And so <clears throat> when I prepared for a practice, I sort of had a general idea of what the men were going to do that day. It was going to be, uh, you know, heavy medium, medium, light, or light. So I sort of had a general idea of what the practice tempo was going to be like. And women, the same thing. And all of a sudden, I come into this Dean Smith practice, and I'm handed like an agenda. Are you kidding me? So basically, to the minute, Dean Smith has written down, to the minute, what's going on in his practice. I was thinking, oh, my gosh, this is unbelievable. 
And so I'm looking down and sure enough, you know, every, you know, two and a half minutes or however long, whatever that session was, a noise would go off and you'd see the players go from one section of the gym to the other. And there was even a noise before they went to a water break and they're all jogging off for water. The noise would erupt itself again and they'd have to run back to a different station. And, and then I'm also noticing underneath every single basket in the gym is a very formal looking manager with a clipboard and a pen and he's recording stuff underneath that basket. And I'm looking at all the different baskets. Yeah, if it's a three-point shooting exercise, actually back then, I don't think there was three-point shooting. So if it was a 2v2 with the bigs underneath the basket, you know, points were scored and recorded. The guy boxed out for the rebound or failed to, that would be recorded. If it was a free-throw shooting event, that was recorded. If it was shooting in general, that was recorded. If it was a 3v3, 4v4, or 5v5, the results were recorded. And I'm thinking, this is absolutely amazing. I'm I'm seeing all this data being collected. And then all of a sudden, the practice is over. And I'm looking down at my sheet. And sure enough, on the sheet, I can see that he has followed everything to the minute. So this guy, in my opinion, was an org- organizational genius. And then all of a sudden, he calls the boys together at the end. And he's chatting with them a bit. And while he's calling the boys together, I'm seeing all the assistant managers sprint. And I'm not exaggerating. Sprint to the scorer's table. Sitting at the scorer's table was the head manager and you would see him grab one, you know, clipboard and then another. And you would see him, you know, with a calculator, I guess, assembling that day's practice data. And then by the time Dean Smith had finished addressing the troops, you'd see Dean turn around by this juncture, the head manager would hand Dean Smith a practice ranking. Basically the first five guys would get to leave the shower immediately because through their algorithm, the top five guys had the privilege of leaving practice uh, basically before everyone else was doing sprints. The next five were lined up uh, on the end of the court, you know, foul line and back, uh, mid court and back, other foul line and back, other end of the court and back. And then the last five guys, I assume, are doing uh, sprints until the end of recorded time. And I was thinking, this is extraordinary. And this is basically deliberate practice, Anders Ericsson stuff on steroids. Because the feedback was immediate, but it was also ranked. And I was thinking, you know what? That's the way I'd like to go. Uh, I'd, I'd like to go to that kind of practice. I would like for all of my peers to acknowledge that this alpha was, again, the most dominant force in practice. Because that's just the way I'm built. And we took Dean's stuff. We soccerized it. And we took it to a completely different level. And um they get feedback. And now we're at a completely different level, even from the Dean Smith's days. Because now I have seven analytics uh, people, an analytics team, who are all studying statistics at the University of North Carolina. So these are people that are used to numbers. And they're taking a practice and they're turning it into numbers. And so even though we have pre-designed, you know, one-on-one ladders and heading ladders and shooting exercises and, you know, you name it. We've got everything under the sun. Of course, the kids come in. They've got a beep test. They've got a, you know, a 30-meter dash for acceleration and speed. They've got agility, agility testing. I mean, we test them every conceivable way. I know everything about my athletes by the end of that season, uh, including where they rank in the cauldron. But what they're getting now, which is even more advanced, is my analytics team is sending them results from that day's practice in minute detail. How many times they gave the ball away, how many times they won it, how many key passes they made, how many times they shot, and what percentage of their shots hit the frame, how many of the shots were across the frame, which is where most good shots should go, blah, 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 blah. I mean, the detail they're getting at night, because it takes them in about two or three hours to assemble this. And by the way, the university gives them six hours credit. So they've looked at my, our data collections, and my analytics, uh, my analytics stuff is so detailed the data uh, analytics department at the University of North Carolina gives them six hours credit. So there is a long waiting list for these statistics people to join my program. And so we're in this luxurious position of selecting the best of the best. So we will actually ask the data analytics department, well, who's your best student? And they'll say, it's, you know, it's John Doe. And we'll look at us. Yeah, well, John Doe has applied. Yep, we're going to embrace him. So and so anyway, so these people that are working for us now that are turning basically soccer performance into data, and that's just part of the data. 
so basically, uh, uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to drive performance uh, with uh, posting the data. Because if you're an alpha, you're not going to want to see your name low on a list. In fact, one of my favorite moments of all time, we brought in this sweet, sweet kid from uh, Dallas, Texas, by the name of Carla Overbeck. And uh, in my opinion, she was one of the best players in the country, but she was just exceptionally kind and thoughtful and sweet. And we brought her in. And it was one of those years where she had to play. We lost the whole defense. She was the center back. So we didn't have a choice. We had to throw her out there on the field. And it was terrifying for her because she was telling me, obviously, three or four years after she graduated, she hated starting in her freshman year. She hated the pressure of having to win games for a team that had been winning national championships. And she hated uh, the cauldron and the fact that every single day in practice, you know, she was asked to beat all of her teammates to death. She just wanted to, you know, hug them all and get along with all of them. And so this was, this was so far out of her comfort zone. And then all of a sudden we're posting this stuff on a regular basis. And all of a sudden I'm seeing her change a bit. In her freshman year, we have five different one-on-one ladders. Her freshman year, she didn't win one game in any of the five ladders. Her senior year, she didn't lose a game in any of the five ladders. I read this interview she gave to uh, the Daily Tar Heel, which is our student newspaper. And she said uh, when they asked her about this transformation she had made as a player, she just came out and bluntly told them, I was sick and tired of seeing my name at the bottom of a list. So this gave her permission to compete because the way she had been raised all of her life was to not compete. So now there's this coach and a value system and structure that was driving her to compete. And it did. And she became one of the greatest leaders I've ever coached. And one of the greatest players for the United States in the history of the United States soccer. She was uh, one of our best players in uh, 1991 when we won the world championship for the first time, she was the captain uh, on a additional gold medal teams and world championship teams. And, uh, but I love that. I'll never forget that uh, interview she gave. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend, but what won't change needing health insurance, United healthcare, tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You said something really interesting there, Anson. I'd like to to delve into a little bit. You talked about values. Now, you've described this amazing philosophy at your school, and I say it's amazing because it's been tested and tried and it's produced results and it's produced great leaders and great people that have gone off into society and done wonderful things. And you've described this philosophy, I think I read somewhere, as steel, sharp and steel. But at the same time, caring and gratitude are part of your team's core values. And I'm really intrigued. How do you balance these potentially contrasting ideas, particularly with young people who are impressionable and are at a time in their life when great change is going on around them? First of all, uh, absolutely wonderful question. Um, I guess I have to share the only other academic award I've ever won. Yeah, the English Award in an African school. Well done, Anson. Absolutely brilliant. And the only other academic award I won, I won the religion award at La Ville Saint-Jean, a boys' boarding school in Freiburg, Switzerland. And why did I win the religion award? <clears throat> because I was insufferable 
in debating all the priests and brothers and nuns at this boarding school for all the policies in our church that I thought were absolutely ludicrous. Um, so as a result, talk about steel sharpening steel, the people I was debating were uh, seminarians going to the University of Freiburg. This, these were some of the brightest minds in Catholicism that were teaching in this boys' boarding school. And I decided to fence with them cerebrally as if my tiny little undeveloped brain would have a chance against any of them. But since I shared with you uh, earlier that confidence has never been a personal problem for me, thanks to, I think, a loving mother, I went after all of them. And at the end of the four years at Saint-Jean, they actually recruited me for the priesthood, um, which was very flattering. I wasn't interested, but I, I was certainly flattered that they would uh, uh, recruit me. Um, so uh, for me, uh, ethics, uh, morality, uh, these are very, very important topics for me. In fact, my undergraduate degree is in philosophy, and then by accident, I picked up an English degree only because I took uh, – reading lists uh, as courses, and that ended up an English degree. I had no intention to be an English degree holder, but the courses I took just gave me an English degree because of book lists of books I wanted to read. But in philosophy, I'm very, very serious about uh, choices that we all have to make. And here's what's interesting about where we are right now, where basically the world is. Uh, we're becoming a more and more secular culture. So one of the things I knew uh, – we had to establish if we were going to have a, uh, the right kind of culture is we had to figure out a set of principles to live by. And since uh, we are becoming a more and more secular culture, uh, so the days of my Catholic boys boarding school, uh, uh, I wasn't within a structure at UNC where I was going to mass on every Sunday and none of my kids that I had recruited or I was coaching had that privilege either to basically be around, you know, people that can spiritually guide you uh, to make the correct choices. And of course I was at the nexus of uh, the final escape from obedience. So a kid finishes uh, his or her uh, senior year of high school uh, where basically they have to genuflect to the higher moral authority in the home, which is the mother and the father and they're there, uh, and their structure is to genuflect to that authority with obedience. Uh, for the first time in their lives, um, they don't have to be obedient anymore. And uh, I don't expect them to be. So now I have an opportunity to teach them uh, principles. And so here's what people are shocked by when uh, we sort of dig into this. Uh, my moral imperative is human development, not soccer development. So the top award at our athletic banquet is not the MVP. It's the Kelly Muldoon Award for character. And so uh, I want these uh, young women I'm coaching now to develop a principal center. They don't come with a built-in principal center uh, because if you've been living a life of obedience, your uh, – your center is not a principal center. It's basically a, a structured uh, sort of lack of choice. Uh, I guess some uh, some would call it form of authoritarianism uh, where you are learning uh, a sort of uh, way to make choices by being obedient. But in my opinion, that doesn't really structure uh, principal centered living uh, with the right uh, tool. And so we have our kids basically memorize and try to live 13 uh, principles. And even though uh, you, you can look at them and say, well, these are basically secular principles, in a way they're not, uh, because almost every secular principle uh, that I select, if you were a, a real biblical scholar or even a, a Jewish scholar or even a Muslim scholar, you could find uh, something within your religious works uh, that uh, would sort of, check that box of the different things I'm having my kids sort of memorize. Uh, and, but then the challenge for them isn't just to memorize these quotations, but it's then to, to live them because twice a year, their teammates are evaluating them against these principles. 
And then, of course, uh, I get to see everyone's grades, but we will share with everyone the top four on the team. And then we would hope that all of them have a sort of a, a peer evaluation, principal-centered evaluation that's over uh, our standard system, which is basically we do it on a four-point scale, the way their academics uh, are graded. So there's no confusion. And we want all of our kids academically to live above a 3.0. And we want them to have a principal center of having their peer evaluation of over a 3.0 as well. So that is a, a very important uh, central tenet of, uh, I guess, my coaching philosophy. Anton, it's a it's a powerful answer, and I appreciate you sharing it with me. I um finding that balance, particularly uh, as a father of two daughters, is is a challenging one. That balance between competitiveness and these these very real and human qualities is is very important. But could I ask a question about your own family? Because I was preparing for this interview at, at a time when we were considering a, a major change in our family, where we were going to live, in which country. And you had, an, you had this idea, which I was reading when we, when we were working through it, and you said the key challenge for any athlete is to find a way to elevate their environment. I really love this idea of always elevating your environment. And if it's, if it's not too personal, I would, was wondering how you've helped your own children implement this idea. <clears throat> for me, uh, um, well, actually, we're even teaching this in uh, the course. Um, there's seed and soil. So basically, uh, the seed is basically what your potential is. And I think all of us have extraordinary potential. If we can find the right soil, if we can find the right mentors, if we can find the right uh, environments to sort of grow in. Um, and so this is our challenge. And it's sort of interesting that you're asking me this question because, uh, um, because I've seen, you know, so many, uh, bad sides of, uh, athletics. Um, I never really forced my kids into, uh, sports. Now they all ended up playing sports and I think a part of it was uh, because I was a coach. But one thing I really enjoyed about uh, uh, watching my kids grow up, um, the influence of my wife. My wife is a former professional dancer. Uh, she danced for Elliot Feld. If you Googled him, he's one of the top American choreographers back in the day. And she danced for the National Ballet Company and Elliot Feld's American Ballet Company. And when we got married, uh, we got married pretty young. And so she had to sort of put her ballet career on hold. <laughs> um, but she ended up teaching. So she came down here and she started teaching. And she started her own dance studio. So <clears throat> uh, all of my kids were brought up, you know, playing soccer, but also dancing. Um, and uh, my eldest daughter <clears throat> uh, had an extraordinary uh, uh, ambition to be really good uh, in a dance form that uh, uh, my wife had in her school. Um, and my wife sorted out that uh, Michelle uh, wasn't going to be a ballet dancer because the shape of her feet uh, just weren't conducive for that sort of dance form at the highest level. But she had uh, a brilliant tap teacher that uh, was one of the partners with my wife in my uh, wife's dance studio. And she became uh, absolutely extraordinary. And uh, actually one of my sort of one of my God take me now moments was last December. Uh, my eldest daughter, uh, who's got her own dance company. Uh, she's got a wonderful name for it. She called it Dorrance dance. How about that? Um, and uh, my son, uh, when he was 15, uh, I asked him what he was going to do with his life. And he said, you know, D dad, I think I want to write music. And I was thinking to myself, oh my gosh, that's interesting. And, I, and then I had a follow-up question. I said, well, why do you think uh, uh, you'll be able to, you know, write music? And his answer was really interesting. And I never forgot his answer. He said, I think I can be a really good composer because I have good taste. And I didn't know what that meant. 
until in December, I'm in uh, New York at the Joyce, and my eldest daughter has three world premieres. And in the middle of the three world premieres was a performance that she danced in and choreographed that my son wrote the music for. And I am in the uh, theater and I am praying, God, take me now. My life is never going to get any better than this <laughs> because my daughter's choreography for the piece was absolutely brilliant. Her dancing was absolutely brilliant. And my son's music was extraordinarily perfect. I can see my son. He's sitting six rows down from me on the left and I'm texting him at the end of his piece. And I basically said, Donovan, that was absolutely unbelievable. And then all of a sudden through the night, because he's texting me back at 3 a.m., we're texting back and forth, we're in New York. And he's explaining to me this, because I have good taste, which is why I'm going to be able to write good music. Because here's what happens if you have good taste and you're a composer. And keep in mind, he's 31. And he told me this at 15. And who knows how many songs he had to burn or throw away. But he's been writing music since he was 15. And at the age of 31, he developed a piece that my other child liked, my daughter liked. And I'm listening to it. And you can imagine the incredible strength it took to basically burn all the other pieces of music that didn't get up to his standard to be able to produce that piece that my daughter liked that she performed at one of the uh, major theaters in New York city. And so uh, I think the thing that has really helped our family is with me being a, a coach of elite athletes and my wife being a teacher of basically elite dancers um, we didn't, um, have our kids suffer for, through the, I guess, the compromising, uh, flattery of the self-esteem movement. So I think a lot of what's happening today with so many of our millennials and our Gen Zs is they were brought up when the common, I guess, sociological and psychological parenting books were telling us that our kids need to have extraordinarily uh, positive self-esteem. And so what ended up happening is that sort of backfired on that generation of kids because basically they were praised for anything under the illusion that, you know, by praising someone for, I guess, substandard, I guess, performance was a good thing because you would end up with good self-esteem. What ended up happening with an entire generation of uh, young men and young women is they had no sense of standards. They also have no resilience because everything they've done apparently is extraordinary to build self-esteem. So here they are, they're growing up, no standards, uh, no resilience as a result, no failures. And um, one of the best uh, teachers I've ever had is failure. And I think one thing we did for our kids is we weren't subject to the self-esteem craze. And I can remember sitting uh, when my uh, eldest daughter was winning a Bessie in New York. And uh, my wife and I turned to each other and uh, we said, uh, uh, maybe she is pretty good. And uh, so, yeah, there are, uh, we have standards. And the thing I absolutely love about my son, my body's a wreck. It's falling apart. So all I do now is I play pickleball. It's the only thing I can do where I, I can get some exercise and, you know, not have a heart attack or, you know, fall over from, you know, all of my various rugby injuries, by the way. Um, and uh, what I love about playing in this public park is the different people that come up to me and tell me what a wonderful man my son is. And I really appreciate that because, uh, for all my kids, I want them to have a principal center. They don't have to be, you know, world-class athletes for me. Uh, I want them to live principal-centered lives. And uh, for me, uh, uh, my kids have just, they've overachieved in our eyes. Uh, and the reason they have is because they're good, humble people. 
uh, and uh, they commit themselves to uh, their relationships, to uh, their art forms. Uh, one, of them, one of my three is, you know, raising a family. And, uh, and I think a part of it has to do with the fact that uh, uh, my wife and I are basically in environments where um, for the first time in these kids' lives that we're coaching or teaching is, uh, no, no, that, that's not good enough. Uh, there's another level. No, that's that's not good enough either. There's another level. So it's what you referred to earlier. I want everyone I come in contact with to live on a never-ending ascension. And I think uh, a part of that is for us in the most positive way to let them know there's another level in them and they have to find it. Anton, I have a final question. It's somewhat of an anticlimax given your tremendous and very open and very human answer to the last question but i i think i'm going to go ahead with it anyway and i'd like to before i ask the question i'd like to start it with a quote and you say i know that these extraordinary women are going to have an impact and it's going to be extra extraordinarily positive so for me my adventure isn't just a football one it's a human one in fact you alluded to this very very point earlier in the interview but I'd like to ask, Anson, in the distant, distant future, when you do retire, what is it <laughs> if you'd retire? I don't think great coaches ever do, by the way. But what's the legacy that you'd like to leave behind you as a coach? <sighs> I think one reason uh, I watch all those political shows is because I've, I'm an eternal optimist. And I think, uh, and I'm quoting someone else, and I'm not going to get this exactly right, but I'll get close to uh, what I'm trying to say. Uh, the arc of human history, I think, bends towards justice. Uh, the arc of human history, I think, bends in the right direction. And I guess I want to be a part of that bending in the right direction. I want uh, the people... Uh, that I've trained uh, to have principal centers uh, to be positive forces in their own community. Uh, I would like my own children uh, to similarly um, maintain their principal centers and have positive impacts in their communities as well. Um, and the other thing that I would love to see is what is starting to happen now in the most positive way. I think what we're starting to see uh, is women are uh, ending up in more and more leadership positions that are making all the difference in the world. And I genuinely feel that a part of that difference um, is because of their opportunities to lead in the right way. Uh, during this horrendous pandemic, um, I was cheering on all of the great leaders in the world and some of the greatest in my opinion were the women that were leading and what was really interesting uh, about something I learned about women a long time ago um, when I was a young coach uh, I didn't know anything about women and um, fortunately for me I thought was back in the early 70s when I was a student at UNC uh, the Radical feminist literature was telling us that men and women are exactly the same. And I was thinking, thank goodness for that, because I don't know anything about women. And they had given me a women's team. And so I guess knowing that men and women were the same it was perfect, because I was going to treat my men and women exactly the same. And I'm here to testify that was an absolute disaster. But what was good about the first women's teams I coached is they were telling me they wanted to be treated differently. And uh, I was given a book by Carol Gilligan, and the title of that book was In a Different Voice. And what I really appreciated about Carol Gilligan's voice is she was attacking Kohlberg's theory of moral development. And the reason she was attacking Kohlberg's theory of moral development is Colbert, Colbert had women dying on the third level and men ascending through the top level, which, and I could get this wrong, 
but I'm guessing this is just from memory, that there were six levels and men went to the sixth level, the highest level. And this highest level had to do with making decisions based on uh, ethical principles or things that, you know, uh, I probably studied as an undergraduate in my philosophy courses or something. And Kohlberg said that women died on the third level. And what was the third level? The third level was women were going to make their moral judgments based on how people were affected. And I love that. I would rather live in a country that is led by a woman who cares on how I am affected. Because if you look at the Angela Merkels and the, and what's the name of the New Zealand uh, uh, leader? Jacinda Ardern. Uh, the previous one. Jacinda Ardern, yeah. Oh, uh, Helen yeah. Clark. Yeah. These women uh, through the pandemic, if you look at the countries that navigated the pandemic the best, they're all led by women. Why? Because their moral center and their decision-making is based on how people are affected. I would rather be led by someone like that. Um, so I want to be that sort of leader, and I want to develop other female leaders like that. And hopefully, I have the chance in this class I'm teaching, uh, the men in the room as well, to make their decisions based on affecting people in the most positive way. So I guess that's the legacy I'd like to leave is uh, let's make this world a better place and let's make it a better place by having uh, our leaders care about all of us. I can't think of a better place to finish as the father of two daughters. So thank you <laughs> so much for your time today, Anton. It's a, a complete masterclass. Uh, I really appreciate you being so open and honest and taking the time with me today. My pleasure. I have thoroughly enjoyed it, as I knew I would. And uh, I am a huge fan of uh, that whole population down under. So I think you've selected the right place to live. <laughs> Thank you, Edson. I appreciate it. And all the best with the season ahead. Hi, everyone. You have been listening to the great coach, Anson Dorrance. I hope you got a lot out of Anson's deep and reflective style and found a few things that you can bring to your own boardroom table, dinner table or locker room for discussion. Some of the other things that Anson had to say that connected with me were how he considers himself an expert in competition and how the competitive environment within his team brings out the very best in his athletes. How he discovered soccer while living in Ethiopia, his theory of seed and soil and how both are necessary to unlock potential, and how a central tenet of his coaching philosophy is human development, not soccer development, and how he brings this to life through peer evaluation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know, just like Ryan L., who said, a great way to spend 45 minutes, so much wisdom in a short space of time. Thanks, Ryan. The interaction with the people around the world who listen gives us great energy. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And if they're positive ones, then please let your friends know too. All the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.